Jeremiah chapter 25, beginning in verse 1, it says, The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, From the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, this is the twenty-third year in which the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you, rising early and speaking, but you haven't listened. And the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, but you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear. They said, Repent now, everyone, his evil way and his evil doings, and dwell in the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers forever and ever. Do not go after other gods to serve them and worship them, and do not provoke me to anger with the works of your hands, and I will not harm you. Yet you have not listened to me, says the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against the land, against its inhabitants and against these nations all around and will utterly destroy them, making them an astonishment, a hissing and a perpetual desolations. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years then it will come to pass when 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord. And I will make it a perpetual desolation. So I will bring on that land all my words which I have pronounced against it. All that is written in this book, which Jeremiah has prophesied concerning all the nations For many nations and great kings shall be served by them also, and I will repay them according to their deeds and according to the works of their own hands. In the book of Jeremiah, we come to this, the twelfth sermon. Number 10, number 11, and now number 12. The last few sermons have focused on the themes of Judah's leaders in chapter 23, the basket of figs in chapter 24, and now we have a fresh theme and a fresh image that will unfold throughout the chapter and come to the end of the chapter. It's the cup of anger. In broad sweeping terms, the sermon will contain 
warnings for Judah and Jerusalem in verses 1 through 14, and then also a word of warning for the nations in verses 15 through 38. So we're going to look at these first 14 verses, the warning of judgment to Judah. And in this passage, Jeremiah is going to share a secret. And it's going to be an important secret. Because I've told you often that when Daniel and his friends were taken in the first captivity and they made their way eventually to Babylon, Jeremiah had in his precious, excuse me, Daniel had in his precious possession this scroll of Jeremiah. And you can imagine in the first years of his captivity, he unrolls the scroll and he goes through chapter one and chapter two and chapter 10 and chapter 12 and chapter 16 and chapter 19. And he comes to chapter 25 and he understands that the captivity is going to have a beginning and a middle and an end and that the 70 years are going to go by and liberation is going to take place take place. And so, once again, Jeremiah will present three indictments and warnings. The first by Jeremiah, who has presented the message of God, not for 10 years, not for 15 years, for 20 and then 21 and 22 and 23 years. Only to have it fall on deaf ears. Only to have the word fall on hard hearts. Only to have the word come over and over again to a group of people who refuse to listen and refuse to turn and refuse to obey God. Now think about this. Jeremiah has been faithfully proclaiming God's message For 23 years and for 23 years no response. The passage brings up several important biblical themes that are contained throughout the scriptures. It's going to touch upon some issues that you should become familiar with, including God's ongoing plan to the Gentiles in history and prophecy, God's ongoing plan to Israel in history and prophecy, God's ongoing plan to redeem mankind. So over and over and over again, we see in the scriptures God's prophetic plan to orchestrate all of human history to bring about what God has always planned. Your redemption, your forgiveness your reconciliation with God. These are the ultimate goals. And so again, when you look at the Bible, and even when you begin reading in the book of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and you wade through Joshua and Judges, you make your way through this thing called human history, the time of the United Kingdom and the divided kingdom, the 300 years of silence, and then the birth of Jesus. All of it. Coming together for the purpose of Jesus being born, Jesus living the perfect life, Jesus dying on the cross. So it begins, if you will, with a chronology. 
In verses 1 through 14, beginning in verse 1, it says the word that came to Jeremiah. And remember, that is a phrase that is used throughout the book of Jeremiah to speak concerning the prophecy and the revelation of God to Jeremiah. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, these kinds of Points and information become very, very important for the Bible teacher and for the Bible scholar and for the Bible student. As a matter of fact, you'll remember that Babylon is the first of four empires that's mentioned in the book of Daniel that God will use in his unfolding plan of prophetic fulfillment. This begins what Bible teachers and Bible scholars call the times of the Gentiles, the destruction of the temple, the captivity of the children of Israel, their deportation to Babylon will begin a time when God will begin to use Gentile nations as he's forming, disciplining, but then going to make a provision for the Messiah. It will begin with Babylon. It will continue with Persia. It will then continue with Greece and then Rome. And those four Gentile empires will serve, if you will, as an interlude as God prepares the planet Earth for the Messiah. Daniel said that Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem in the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign. If you look at Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. And so some people, as you know, will then allege a contradiction. These are the kinds of questions that I'm, I'm really hoping for on my radio program, where people will go, hey, Gino, I couldn't help but reading uh, Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 1, and Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, and the chronology seemed to be mixed up. But nothing could be further from the truth. Daniel was simply using the Babylonian method of coming of counting years of the king's rule, which was to begin with the first full year that followed the ascension to the throne. Jeremiah isn't doing that. Although a king might be crowned in the middle of the year, his rule was dated from the first regnal, or that is, non-ascension year after the crowning. So in the Babylonian culture, if you are, let me just use an example. Imagine you're elected to an office in November 2011. Well, guess what? According to certain ways of calculating, you don't begin until the following year of 2012 as you begin to calculate that person's political um, participation in whatever office they're elected to. So even though a king would be elected in the middle of the, the year, his regnal reign was dated the following year. Therefore, although Jehoiakim succeeded his brother mid-year, Daniel doesn't begin counting the years until after the reign of the following year. And so, according to the Babylonian reckoning of a king's reign, Nebuchadnezzar besieges Jerusalem in the third year of King Jehoiakim's rule. Jeremiah, however, includes the ascension year in counting the years of Jehoiakim's reign, which meant that Nebuchadnezzar invaded Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim's reign. What does all of this mean to you and to me? If you forget everything else I just said, in your mind, there should be a year that is placed in your brain. 
And the year is 605 B.C. The year 605 B.C. is an important year in world history. It's important because this is the year that the Babylonian armies defeated a coalition army of Egyptians and Assyrians at Carchemish. This is the beginning of the ascendancy of Babylon and the time of the Gentiles. That's why this is going to become important. At that moment, in this point in time and space, Babylon becomes a world power. Judah is annexed into the Babylonian Empire. The kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah technically ceases to exist in 605 B.C. and becomes a vassal state to a Gentile world power. Nebuchadnezzar launches the attack against Judah, makes it a vassal state, and there's something else happening. And it's found in Luke chapter 21, verse 24. In Luke chapter 21, verse 24, Jesus says, And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles. Until... The time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. The time of the Gentiles begins here in Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 1. The time of the Gentiles perhaps came to an end in 1967 when... Jerusalem is no longer controlled by Muslim empire, but it becomes a free and independent possession of a reunited Israel. Why is all of this important for you and me? Because God's unfolding plan of redemption, redemption God's plans and purposes and prophecies are unfolding. And so, verse 2 which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, From the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah, even to this date, this is the twenty-third year in which the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you, rising early and speaking, but you haven't listened. I've already told you. Twenty-three years, Jeremiah has been preaching, you know the message, those of you who have faithfully, and I do thank you, by the way, those of you who have faithfully showed up for our Bible study in the book of Jeremiah, and you go, hey, look, Jeremiah chapter 1, Jeremiah chapter 2, Jeremiah chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, there's this reoccurring theme. Uh, the prophet seems to be saying, repent of your sin, turn to God, stop doing all of those wicked and weird things. And same message, it's like, I'm Henry VIII, I am a second verse, same as the first. It's like we've heard this song before. But you know what else isn't contained in the text that I need to tell you, though? For my Bible students out there, how long will Jeremiah's ministry last? 
About 40 years. You know what this means? Jeremiah's only the halfway point. Can you imagine you've been preaching the same message for 23 years and all of a sudden, through some sort of supernatural intervention, God says, oh, by the way, you're only halfway done. I got to tell you, if you do anything for 20 years in a row, it can get old. It can get old. But Jeremiah is faithful. He was called into God's service in the year 626 B.C. And again, if you want the citation, it's Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 2. Jeremiah will continue to preach. He will continue to prophesy. Jerusalem has fallen. He will continue to preach and he will continue to prophesy until 587 B.C. for a total period of about 40 years. Jeremiah's preaching began in the reign of Josiah. In the, at the beginning of the reign of Josiah, well, when when. Jeremiah begins to preach. He will preach for 19 years of the reign of Josiah and then four years under the evil, brutal dictatorship of Jehoiakim. So Jeremiah's ministry was marked by repeated opposition, repeated rejection, repeated isolation. The people had rejected the word of God. They had closed their ears. They denied the truth. They suppressed the prophecies. They refused to believe the message. But then they discovered something that Jeremiah was right. huh? Jeremiah said, army's going to come from the north. Army's going to capture the city. Army's going to kill you. The army's going to take several people away captive. You would think after that kind of a track record, some people would be would be saying, you know what? Maybe we should listen to the old guy. Maybe we should have a little heads up. By the way, let me ask you a question. Maybe you've been doing something for a very long time in a way that you wouldn't characterize as being successful. You get up. You do the same thing day after day. And week after week, and month after month, and year after year. And you might be thinking, I'm a little discouraged. I'm wondering if there's something else I I need to do. I'm wondering if there's something else that God has called me to do. But whatever that is, and whatever the answer might be for Jeremiah, God has a plan and a purpose. And the, the plan and the purpose is... I need you to stay the course. I need you to be faithful to what I've called you to do. I've given you a message, and I need you to communicate that message, and I need you to be faithful to that message. Your message may not be the same message as Jeremiah's. Your task may not be the same task. Very few people are called to be a prophet of God to a withering nation. But I suspect that most of us are called to tell the truth about God To a group of people that have no interest in hearing it. They have no interest in hearing about the Bible. They have no interest in hearing the gospel. They have no interest in having their sins pointed out. Or the solution to the problem of their sin. But guess what? As you know, it's the only hope. It's the only thing that will create a mechanism of forgiveness and reconciliation. 
And so we go to the contents of Jeremiah's message. Look at verse 4. And the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them. But you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear. You'll notice he uses that expression for the third time, rising early. What does that mean? That he came with a timely message. The prophets came with a timely message, with plenty of time to respond and obey. So the second indictment was issued by the true prophets in previous generations. And so part of the point that Jeremiah is making is time and time again, God sent prophet after prophet. To the northern tribes, God sent Amos and then Hosea. And then God sent Jonah to Nineveh and Edom. And then God sent Obadiah. And then to the southern kingdom of Judah, God sends Joel in 835 B.C. And then he sends Isaiah in 740 B.C. And then he sends Micah in 735 B.C. And then he sends Zephaniah in 630 B.C. Then he sends Jeremiah in 627 B.C. Then he sends Habakkuk in 607 B.C. And so when you open up your Bible and you're opening up to all of these books, you might be thinking, Hey, these books sound strangely familiar. They seem to have the same messages as Jeremiah. You're in trouble. You need to turn from your sin. And you need to appropriate the grace and the mercy, the love and the protection, the forgiveness and the hope of God. And then you read the next prophet. And then you need to read the next prophet. You know the answer to their prophetic themes. Turn from your sin. Turn to the Lord. But I need to remind you of something. Just in case you've grown weary of the message. The moment that the prophet speaks and the moment that the prophet says, turn from your sin and embrace the Lord. It really is a message of hope. It's the same message that's contained in the New Testament. That if we turn from our sin, if we confess our sin. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so in verse 5 it says, they said, he's repeating their message. They said, repent now every one of his evil way and his evil doings. And dwell in the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers forever and ever. The repeated message was, I'm your God. I love you. I've prepared a place for you. I'm your God. I've given you every provision that you need in order to submit and to obey. You know the, the, the drill. If the people turn from evil, God would allow them to continue to remain in the land. Verse 6. Do not go after other gods to serve them and worship them. Do not provoke me to anger with the works of your hands, and I will not harm you. Listen to the message. Turn from evil. Remain in the land. Avoid idolatry. So, how did they respond to the message? They embraced evil and then embraced idolatry. And then thought to themselves, God's been really patient. God's been very kind. God's been very generous. 
You know, I woke up this morning and I didn't have a heart attack. I woke up this morning and the world seems to be going on exactly the same way that it's always gone on. God held out a promise. Look, if you'll turn from evil, if you'll remain in the land, if you'll turn from idolatry, I won't judge you. And I won't harm you. But look at verse 7. Yet you have not listened to me, says the Lord. 900 B.C., not listening. 800 B.C., not listening. 700 B.C., not listening. 600 B.C., not listening. I need to ask you kind of an important question. Who's to blame for their judgment? That, them, that's the right answer. Is it because God didn't give them a heads up? Did God give them sufficient warning? Was God patient and kind and generous and long-suffering? Do you ever wonder, do you, have you ever prayed a prayer, Lord, why didn't you give me a heads up? Why didn't you tell me this was coming? i got to tell you something. God is so patient. He is so kind. He is so generous. He is so patient and kind and generous. But the Lord himself levels that third indictment. He brings three strong charges against the people. No matter what he offered them, number one, they wouldn't listen. They stubbornly, repeatedly closed their ears, hardened their hearts, stiffened their necks. Number two, they provoked the Lord by turning aside from God and turning to the objects of their newfound affection, their newfound devotion, their newfound fascination. In verse 7, yet you have not listened to me that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands. And who's going to get hurt? To your own hurt. Who's in trouble? God? You think God's in heaven going, oh, this is horrible. This is terrible. The Bible says that he's in heaven. He sits on the throne. He orchestrates the plans and purposes of humanity. But the gods and the goddesses and the product of their empty imaginations and their man-made deities was only going to result in their own judgment and condemnation. And so no matter what he offered them, they wouldn't listen. Number two, they provoke the Lord to anger by turning away from God and turning to false idols. And number three, it was an invitation to judgment because of their stubborn refusal to listen and obey. There was no one to blame but themselves. And here's part of the message. They had to accept their own guilt. They had to accept their own blame. They had to accept the consequences that come with guilt and come with blame and come with persistent, unrepentant rebellion, disobedience. That seems to be one of the great themes in the Bible. Judgment follows disobedience 
And look at verse 8. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts. And remember, when the Bible uses different names for God, in this particular instance, when he is Elohim, when he is the Lord of hosts, it becomes a, a way of communicating his absolute power, his absolute authority, his absolute ability to to bend all of reality in order to accomplish his plans and his purposes. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. You should underline that. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, against the nations all around, and utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing, and a perpetual desolation. That's an idiomatic expression in the Hebrew language, which means that people will look with This is the original biblical shock and awe. Where, pe where people see something... And you just, your jaw drops, your eyes get wide, and you can't believe the devastation that's taken place. By the way, in verse 9, does it shock you that God calls Nebuchadnezzar my servant? In what way is he God's servant? He's God's servant because God is going to use Nebuchadnezzar as the instrument of discipline. As a matter of fact, in the book of Isaiah, God refers to Cyrus, the future king of Persia, by name as my servant. And so what does this mean? In, in what way is, are these unbelieving rulers, these unbelieving kings, in what way are they God's servant? The kings are serving God's purposes. Even in judgment, God will allow these kings to rule. God will allow them to reign and capture and punish the people of Israel. God will use both king and the king's armies in the tools of his hands. And you know what that means for you? Can God use unbelieving politicians as instruments in his hands? The answer is yes. So does it matter if they are in Europe or if they're in the Middle East or if they're in Africa or if they're in Washington, D.C.? It doesn't matter. God will use Whomever he wishes in order to accomplish whatever he desires. And that's the point. I want you to think about it for just a moment. The king of Babylon, not a believer. King of Persia, not a believer. But God is going to use the unbelievers to conquer. And accomplish his will. You know what that principle is in the Bible? It's the principle of God's sovereignty. God is sovereign. God is in control. God orders and orchestrates all of human history. And so, I want you to think about that for just a moment. I, I want you to pause for just a second and think about it. The people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem... Are they God's people? 
Yes. Are they God's people dishonoring and disobeying God? What's the answer? Yes. The the people of Judah and Jerusalem would not listen to God and would not obey God. Even when they had everything to gain by it. They had everything to gain. And they also had everything to lose. Doesn't it make sense to you that the king of, of, of Babylon and the king of Persia, does it make sense to you that they would listen to God and they would obey God? How is it possible that the people of God disobey God and the people who aren't the people of God obey God? And how is it possible for you as a Christian A person who knows God, a person who loves Jesus, a person who reads their Bible, a person who prays, a person who has everything to gain by listening carefully and specifically and obeying God in the plans and purposes. The king of Babylon and the future king of Persia unwittingly will serve the plans and purposes of God. And even though you may not believe it and you may not fully understand it, the people who are apart from God, distant from God, the political rulers of our country, the business magnates in our country, your unbelieving family, your unbelieving friends. Is it possible that God can unwittingly use them? In order to accomplish his plans and purposes. Is it even possible that he could use them in your life to accomplish the plans and purposes that he has for you? That's the point. In the end, God will accomplish his plan and his purpose. And we as a church need to remember that the Lord is sovereign. He can use whatever he tools he deems necessary to accomplish that purpose. And the tools may not be the sharpest tools in the, in the shed. In verse 10, look what it says. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. Once Judah and Jerusalem were destroyed, they would become objects of ridicule and scorn. And in verse 10, it says the normal activities will come to a halt. If you walk through Southwest Plaza or if you go to Park Meadows, you're going to hear the sounds of mirth and the sounds of gladness. People are going about business. You know, it's the happiest time of the year. And you know, it is. It's a time of joy. It's a time of celebration. This should be a time where we contemplate, meditate, and otherwise begin to consider the reality that God has intervened in human history. That the most wonderful gift that could ever be given is the person of Jesus. That there's a provision for sin. There's there's forgiveness and there's hope and there's reconciliation. And in Jerusalem, they would laugh and they would sing. And they would have weddings, grooms and brides. They would celebrate and rejoice. 
The sound of the millstones are the grinding of the corn and the wheat and the flowers because people are baking and they are cooking and they are eating and the light of the lamp. You know what the light is. It is that very present light that makes the darkness go away. And in the midst of light, there is a sense of security and understanding It's what makes the darkness go away, but it's all going to disappear. And that's what he says in verse 11. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Ah, all of a sudden there's a prophetic insight. The king of Babylon is going to have his way. That means Persia and Lebanon and Assyria and Egypt will collapse under the weight of its power and strength. As a matter of fact, elsewhere in Isaiah, we learn that even the animals will obey the king of Babylon. Now the Lord shares with Jeremiah God's secret. The captivity will last 70 years. We're going to find that out in chapter 29, verse 10. If you just turn over just a couple of chapters very quickly. In verse 10 it says, For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. The captivity is going to have a beginning and it's going to have a middle and it's going to have an end. And in a very real sense, we as Christians understand that what looks like bondage is going to have a beginning and it's going to have a middle and it's going to have an end. God promises Christians that one day we're going to be freed from the yoke of sin. The Bible says that when Jesus died on the cross, we were freed from the penalty of sin. The Bible also says because Jesus died on the cross, we are being freed from the power of sin. And one day, one day, we will be liberated from the very presence of sin. We'll never see sin anymore. We'll never have to participate in its wickedness and ugliness. We'll never have to serve it. Ever again. You know, yesterday a good friend of mine went to be with the Lord. And um, he was misdiagnosed. He had some strange illness that, that prevented nutrients from entering into his body. And quite literally before the doctors and the specialists, he starved to death. And they had no way of knowing what was happening. And many, many people will suddenly find themselves shockingly, surprisingly, in a circumstance where the time has run out and the chances are gone. Daniel and his companions left in what was called the first deportation. Now, now in the deportation, remember I, I told you, you may not be a chronological kind of a person or a person who 
cares about timelines and all of that stuff. But Daniel and his companions left in what's called the first deportation in 605 B.C. This means that the 70 years will end with the return of the first exiles in 536 B.C. And if you want more information, you can look at Daniel chapter 9 verses 1 and 2 or you can go into the media room or you can go online and download the messages from Daniel chapter 9. It's very, very insightful. But, in, but again, it's going to have a beginning. It's going to have a middle and it's going to have a, an end. And in verse 12, it says, then it will come to pass. Aren't those beautiful words? It will come to pass. It has a beginning and a middle and an end when the 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon and the nation. I know what some of you are thinking. Wait a minute. In the earlier verse, it says that Nebuchadnezzar is God's servant. Now, if God, if, if Nebuchadnezzar is God's servant and he's simply doing what God told him to do. Why would he punish him? Because. Nebuchadnezzar is going to do way beyond what God told him to do. He will exercise pride and cruelty and wickedness. It will come to pass when the 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation by the way, just as an aside, one of the reasons for the 70 years is that Israel and Judah had neglected to keep the Sabbath law concerning the land. As a matter of fact, for those of you familiar with the passage in in Leviticus chapter 25, if you go to to Leviticus chapter 25, beginning in verse three, here's what it says. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. Whatever grows of its own accord of your harvest you shall not reap, nor gather the grapes of your unintended vine. For it is the year of rest for the land, and the Sabbath produce of the land shall be food for you, for your male and for your female servants and your higher demand. And the stranger who dwells among you, for your livestock and the beasts are in your land, for its produce shall be for your food. Every seventh year you are supposed to cease and desist working the land. And so for the first seven years, Israel didn't do it. The second seven years, they didn't do it. They didn't do it again, and they didn't do it again, and they didn't do it for a hundred years, and they didn't do it for two hundred years, and they didn't do it for three hundred years, and they didn't do it for four hundred years, and they didn't do it for four hundred and ninety years. And God said, you owe me. You owe me. You won't do what I ask you to do. Guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to take you out of the land. And the 70 years that you refused me, I'm going to take back. I'm going to move you out of Judah and Jerusalem. I'm going to place you in a foreign place. And then I am going to exercise my right to rest the land. And that's exactly what he does. 
And God will punish the king of Babylon for evil. And he will punish him for injustice. And he will punish him for cruelty. And if you don't think that Nebuchadnezzar was evil and unjust and cruel, just read the book of Daniel. Read the book of Daniel and find out when he erects a statue of gold with the breastplate of silver. Read about when he causes all people to worship him and he takes the the friends of Daniel, the three children, and he tosses them in the fiery furnace. And just like Babylon enslaved its neighbors, it would be enslaved. And the principle that's in the Bible will come true for the individual and it will come true for the nation. Remember what is written in the New Testament. God is not mocked what a person sows that also they will. So guess what? If you sow gratitude, what are you going to reap? Thanksgiving. If you sow generosity, guess what you're going to get? You're going to get freedom. And look what it says in verse 13. So I will bring on that land all my words, which I have pronounced against it. All that is written in this book, which Jeremiah has prophesied concerning all the nations. By the way, later on, (laughs) the king will get the scroll of Jeremiah, which you're reading. He'll get the scroll. He'll read the prophecies. And you know what the king will do? He will take the book, he will take the scrolls, and he'll toss it in the fire and make it burn. Because you know what the king was thinking? If I can burn the prophecies of Jeremiah, then maybe they'll go away. We don't necessarily burn the Bible. Most people in our culture and society, they just simply refuse to open it. They just simply won't read it. They just simply won't care about it. They're just apathetic and indifferent. But the Bible is true. And the prophecies given in the Bibles indicate a supernatural revelation given in advance and fulfilled to the letter. So what the Lord promises, the prophecies contained in the book of Jeremiah will happen. The surrounding nations will be punished. God will deal with Babylon. God will raise up the Persian king. God will liberate them from captivity and cause them to return, even though it seems impossible and you have family and you have friends and even you sometimes will open up your Bible and you'll look at a particular promise and you'll say that can't be true but it is true it can't be true that God will accept me on the basis of Jesus oh it is true God won't forgive me all my sins oh yes he will Will God cleanse my heart and reconcile me to himself? And will God really? Is it true? Is it true what it says in in John 14 where Jesus said, I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a place for you to receive you to myself so that where I am, that's where you're going to be also? Has it ever occurred to you that everything, everything, everything that Jesus promised is going to come to pass? By the way. 
The prophecies given in the Bible indicate a supernatural revelation given in advance. So what is the purpose of biblical prophecy? In Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, we read these words. If you wonder, how shall we know whether the prophecy is from the Lord or not? This is the way to know. If the thing he prophesies doesn't happen, it's not from the Lord who has given him the message. He made it up himself. You don't have anything to fear from him. Harold Camping. Jesus is going to come May 21st doesn't happen. I was off by my calculations by six months. Doesn't happen. How many times do you have to be bamboozled? How many, just because a person says, hey, this is what the Lord said to me. Prophecy reveals true messages from the true God. And this is part of the point that Jeremiah is making, that he's a real prophet hearing from the real God who's really in heaven, who orchestrates humanity's future. Prophecy is intended, listen carefully, prophecy is intended to reveal God's plan and to reveal God's purpose, but it's also intended to encourage you. Not discourage you, to encourage you. The purposes of the planet is going to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. The purpose of prophecy is to encourage you, but I'm going to be even more specific. The purpose of prophecy is to encourage you to listen with a soft heart and open ears with a view towards obedience and to give you hope. We would do well to pay attention to God's word and God's prophecies. We can't reject his word, ignore his commandments or his warnings. So what happens if we are close to the word of God? What happens if we're hard hearted? What happens if we're stiff necked? You know what? We are always given a choice. To hear God's word gladly. Or to hear God's word sadly. We can hear it sadly and obey it. We can hear it gladly and obey it. I'm going to suggest to you, to you that you hear it gladly and obey it. But you can also hear it gladly, but then refuse it. Look what it says in verse 14. For many nations and great kings shall be served by them also. And I will repay them according to their deeds and according to the works of their own hands. In what sense? Babylon will cause the surrounding nations to yield to its will. But the surrounding nations will resist God. And resist God's people. And reject God's promises. In the end, the end of captivity will spell freedom for Judah and punishment for Babylon. So, again, how is it possible that God raises up Nebuchadnezzar to do God's will and then punishes him for accomplishing that will? 
The answer in part is because Nebuchadnezzar wasn't given permission to be haughty, to be proud, to be hateful, to be cruel, to be wicked. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar crossed the line and he overstepped his bounds and Babylon would fall to the armies of the Medes and Persia in 539 B.C. Again, if you want more information on that, you can go to my website or you can go to the media. You can check out Daniel chapter 5 and it it spells it out in in pretty detailed um, dramatic fashion. In history and prophecy... By the way, there are three major divisions in the scripture. And that's part of what I wanted to end with. When you look at the scriptures as a whole, you see three things begin to emerge. God's plan for the covenant people. God's plan for the Jews. God's plan for the Gentiles. God's plan for the church. God's ultimate plan for Israel was to bring forth the Messiah and in a very real sense to bring about Israel's redemption. So what is God's plan for the Gentile nations? It would appear that God is going to use the Gentile nations to demonstrate his sovereignty and his power and his omnipotence, but also to bring the Gentile nations to a place where they will understand and believe that Jesus is God's Messiah. And of course, what is God's plan for the church? Let me just say it in the most simple way that I can. It's to reveal God's grace in the most supreme way. God's plan for the church is to form a bride who will accompany Jesus throughout all of eternity. By the way, that's God's plan for you. It's to prepare you to meet Jesus, to be his constant companion forever and ever. John Parker, the hymn writer, sums it up this way. God holds the key of all unknown. And I am glad if other hands should hold that key or if he trusted it to me, I might be sad. No kidding. God holds the key. Think of all of the man-made philosophies and prophecies and inaccuracies and ambiguities. And then contrast that with what the Bible says. The Bible says the woman is going to conceive and bring forth a child. Think of what Isaiah says. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty, God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Daniel chapter 2, verse 28. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown what will happen. And again, G.B. Hardy writes, Only the supernatural mind can have prior knowledge to the natural mind. If then the Bible has foreknowledge, historical and scientific, beyond the permutation of chance, it truly then bears the fingerprint of God. Your Bible is a supernatural book given by the Holy Spirit, written on three different continents over 1900 years with over 300 prophecies 
that the woman will give birth, that Abraham will have a son, Isaac, and Isaac will have a son, Jacob, and Jacob will have a son, Judah, and Judah will have a son named Jesse, and Jesse will have a son named David, and David is be, will be given a promise that through his offspring and progeny, a king will come. And that's what we sang about tonight, didn't we? The shoot of Jesse, the offspring of David. You know, I read an interesting blog by a woman. She claims that she was raised in a Christian home. She wrote that she grew up in this Christian home and she grew up and she was told by her parents to believe the Bible and believe Jesus. She says she was told by her parents, you can't serve two masters. Either you will serve Jesus or you will serve Satan. And in her little 12 year old mind, she says, well, maybe there's a third option. I could I don't have to serve Jesus and I don't have to serve Satan. I can serve myself. Never occurred to her. That she was just simply substituting one master for another. She thought that she wasn't really serving Satan. That she could just simply serve herself. That that was a viable option. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear. That for reasons that I don't completely understand. Some people will refuse to embrace God's offer of salvation and redemption. For, for reasons that I don't understand, a group of people can hear a message of hope and think it's a message of judgment. They can hear a message of prophecy and they think it's just an option. They think that they can refuse God's offer to drink from the cup of salvation and ignore and reject the cup of God's wrath. A cup that's spoken of here at the end of the chapter and later in the book of Revelation where there is a cup. It's called the cup of the wrath of his indignation which begins to fill slowly but surely with anger and wrath and judgment. You know, after Jesus rose from the dead in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, he said, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets and in the Psalms. Jesus believed that the entire revelation of God was linked to him, to his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. Isn't that powerful? There is a cup of salvation that we can drink deeply from. But there's also a cup of indignation. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we thank you for the grace and the mercy and the hope that's found in Jesus. And Lord, again, as we wade through Jeremiah's difficult messages, Lord, we pray that somehow just beyond 
the repeated statements of listen and learn, stop and obey, that, Lord, we would take the message to heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Wow, it lasted a little.